Thank you very much for downloading the Trap One podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Jason. I'm Jason too. And I'm Keith, but we'll change my name to Jason if that helps. All right, we need a way of distinguishing <laughs> which Jason is which. So I'm Jason M. Uh, I'm also Jason M. <laughs> that, that doesn't help us at all. <laughs> All right, well, I guess by my accent, I can go by American Jason or Brooklyn Jason. I'll just have to be British Jason then. That works for me. British and Brooklyn. We okay. should uh, declare a war. There, there is the, the very famous Battle of Brooklyn, which opened the Revolutionary War in August 1776. We'll try to avoid bloodshed during the next 90 minutes, I promise. <laughs> but we will teach you historical facts. <laughs> and how to make tea Indeed. and where to buy your action figures <laughs> yes yeah. the action figures that I don't have being that I'm in America so I'll be sitting out the first 10 minutes or so of this call yeah so we're going to talk about um, the character options Keys of Mariner set which has recently been released available exclusively through BNM Bargains uh, the set comprises two Vord and an Ian Chesterton Keith did you ever think we'd see an action figure of Ian? No, genuinely. I'd even bought the uh, Eagle Moss version, thinking I would have at least a version of him. What do you think of the likeness of him, though? I think it's very good. Um, I mean, obviously, he's not wearing the costume that he wears in the Keys of Marinus. He's, uh, he's a sort of a classic Ian in his suit and <laughs> Cole Hill tie, rather than the Marco Polo outfit. But I think facially and hair, I think it's a really, really good likeness. What do you think? I think his cheeks are a bit big, but apart from that, I think it's excellent, yes. <laughs> They're reusing the, the bodies, aren't they, for these figures. It's just a way of keeping the cost down, I think. And uh, I think the suit was just um, de facto what they'd have to do to produce the figure. But uh, no, it's it's amazing we've got it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a nice kit bash, isn't it? Um, it's, the, it's the master body they used from the John Sin figure, isn't it? But um, I remember I bought the set a couple of weeks back, and uh, when I got home, my partner said, why have they made a figure of Jimmy Fallon? <laughs> I said no, no, that's Ian Chesterton. That's the actor William Russell. And she went, oh right, okay. <laughs> well, at the end of the end of time, part one, everybody in the world turned to John Sim, and William Russell was alive and still is alive. So William Russell in the Doctor Who universe would have turned into John Sim at the end of End of Time, part one. So that makes this a very screen-accurate figure for the brief uh, five-minute uh, time that <laughs> William Russell would have been the John Sim master. <laughs> My question is, though, is where is Altos and Sabitha? Altos was wearing, I think, the shortest shorts in the history of television in Keys of Marinus. And it's almost criminal that that was not reenacted in uh, action figure form. And he's in the story way more than the Vord as well. Him and Sabitha, they never change their clothes all the time. They're wearing their stinky old clothes all the way through it. They don't even get to wear the glam ones. They'd have to wear the horrible ones all the way along. Just like an 80s companion then. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, they don't count as... I suppose they didn't go in the TARDIS, did they? They're sort of de facto companions, but they're, they're never talked about in the uh, in the companion conversation in the way that like um, Sarah Kingdom is. And you, you do know, get that kind of idea that there's a passage of time, isn't there, like across this whole story, that it does take them a while. It's not like just, a, you know, happens in a couple of hours. It, it's a, a bit of a trek, isn't it? Mm. We get the sense they're in millennia a long time anyway. Yes. Yeah. Now, I had just finished watching Resurrection of the Daleks for my Doctor Who pilgrimage on Twitter, and it was Ian Levine who assembled all the companion photos. Now, there's an argument that one of the reasons we think of Sarah Kingdom and Katarina as companions is because Ian Levine put them in the montage. What if Ian Levine had put Altos and Sabitha in the montage because they traveled across multiple locations with the TARDIS crew and Keys of Marinus? That could have just been a whole game changer for the way we consider the whole companion debate. And why did he exclude Leela? Because she's female? Uh, I mean, um, <laughs> it was an inadvertent mistake, according to the DVD info text. He must have had an argument with her at a convention or something. Yeah. <laughs> she must have blocked him on Twitter. <laughs> so, also in the set, we have the two Vord figures, uh, which are identical other than their little um, antennae on their heads. 
What's particularly great about these is they stand up, I think, better than any other Doctor Who action figures because of the flippers on their feet. Um, you get some of them are particularly sort of unsteady on their pins, aren't they? I'm thinking of uh, Missy. Is uh, it's quite hard to stand up. These these are great. Particularly bad. Perry, she's particularly bad. Clara as well uh, always falls down. Yeah. Uh, so these figures also come with a little knife, which was quite nice. Is they've got a hand that will hold the knife, and they've got a little sort of holster for it at their belt. Uh, so uh, they don't have to be sort of uh, bearing the knives all the time. Uh, it's, it's a bit surprising that actually, like you know, these action figures that you actually get something like that, like a knife, because that kind of thing really probably isn't like kind of like you know seen to be uh, should be with like kids' toys these days. The Vora are quite stabby though, aren't they? they it is oh, a big part of yeah, very. The whole store is quite stabby. I mean, they've all get stabbed as well, don't they? I mean, the poor Vord at the beginning, one gets melted, one gets stabbed. I mean, they're hardly big threats. And then there was the cardboard cutout Vord that falls to his death in part one. Do oh. they include a cardboard <laughs> cutout Vord for you to toss down the trash compactor chute? That would have been really screen accurate. Unfortunately, death, yes. <laughs> unfortunately not, but the, the box that the figures come in has a really nice uh, backdrop to it. Um, which is uh, one of the locations from the story, uh, and it's where you can see. Um, I don't know if you you guys can see this on the on the camera here. It's the statue that grabs Barbara and then Ian. Ah, uh, yeah, the gropey statue. Yeah, <laughs> that's from the Screaming Jungle. But the Vord never made it to that location, so you're losing screen accuracy. They should have had four different dioramas, one for each area of Marinus that we go to during the story. You could have then assembled them kind of in a square and had the entire world of Marinus on your dining room table. That's a missed opportunity. Well, talking of screen accuracy, you've got the uh, one of the other B&M sets that's been released is the Day of the Daleks uh, twin set. And that has a diorama uh, background of the tunnel that the Daleks come out. And for some reason, they've decided to stick a Blake 7 robot in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know why. <laughs> I think it's because the chap who does them absolutely adores Blake 7. There's a few um, Blake 7 cameos in a lot of the backdrops as well. There's like uh, like Liberator bracelets on shelves and that kind of thing. Oh, wow. oh, I've never noticed them before. I just thought that one was uh, quite an the anomaly. i got to say, the Vord action figures are just gorgeous i would love to own those they're screen accurate they're substantial and yes they're a little stabby but i think that adds to the appeal and i'm not so worried about children because how many children walking around today in the year 2021 are going to be familiar with the 1964 television serial i think the core audience for these figures are guys of a certain age who know better than go around stabbing their siblings with a rubber knives i think it's just the kids with really good parents isn't it that would know about them i think (laughs) (laughs) really good parents (laughs) uh so you talk in your uh video on your excellent youtube channel british jason uh the bearded geek toy review um about where where these originated from as well the um in terms of of where the mold uh comes from yeah i mean we've had quite a good run of uh, figures recently we've um obviously you know when b&m first started doing the action figure range uh for doctor who and they took it over really from forbidden planet you kind of like just got for a couple of years we just got reprint painted figures and variant figures uh but what they seem to have discovered is they seem to have discovered that over the course of the years, there's been that many figures that have been produced that they can effectively kit bash the bodies and keep the costs down. So Ian Chesterton's obviously example, um, all they have to pay for is the brand new sculpt of the head because they've already got the moulds for the body. And the moulds for the board are um, what was used for the uh, Shara's Jack figure and also the male Axon figure as well. And again, all they need to then do is add the accessories and do a new head and the new flipper feet. And it creates a brand new figure. So um, uh, if you notice with the um, 1970s fourth Doctor companion set that they released last year, um, they were all various kit bashes of either a primeval figure, which was the genesis of the Daleks, Sarah Jane, 
and then the two Romanas were actually kit-bashed from um, the bodies of previous Sarah Jane adventure figures, which they then adjusted slightly and then added like stuff like you know the white scarf for Romana 2 for her Destiny of the Daleks outfit. So they've been really, really clever in how they're trying to give us more new figures, but obviously trying to keep the cost down. So you know the, the price range stays at around about £20 for a free figure set. That's brilliant. Yeah, I like that kind of inventiveness. It's very good while you're still getting excellent figures um, out of it as well. We're talking about recycling figures to make other figures from other stories. Can they release a single Stuart Fell action figure uh-huh. and a single Pat Gorman <laughs> and uh, all the other extras and stuntmen and a, a, a single Terry Walsh? And that way... With those, you could reenact pretty much every Doctor Who story from 1970 through 1983 <laughs> just with those two action figures alone. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because we got the unit set, didn't we, with uh, Benton and Mike Yates. And then later on, they re released the Mike Yates figure with um, the Scottish Fourth Doctor in a Terror of the Zygon set. But this, instead of doing a different head for a, a generic unit soldier they just painted a mustache on mike yates (laughs) (laughs) and in a way it it seems odd that b&m bargains of all places is the outlet for this when i was a kid i lived in blackpool for a little while and there was a shop there called b&m bargains which i used to actually quite like going to with my parents because they sold really cheap toys and, and stuff like that that could buy with my pocket money and then when we moved away, if we went back to Blackpool, we would always visit it. And then later on, they opened a second branch in Cleveland. And then flash forward like 30 years, and they're absolutely everywhere. Like every single town has one now, don't they? It's- they took over Woolworth sites, didn't they? When Woolworths went bust, B&M's really made their move then. Like every sort of like Woolworths, and it got turned into a B&M's. Yeah, I think... Um, um- we, I'm lucky enough, we've got two major B&M stores where I live, and one of them is an old British home stores, um, right. store, which is like, you know, quite huge. And then uh, they took over an old B&Q store as well, uh, just down the road from me, which is like, you know, where I normally get my figures from. But for some reason, they've not stopped uh, this latest range yet. Yeah, they, they, there's quite a hunt for them, isn't there? It's quite, quite sort of hit and miss. We, we have four branches in Carlisle. And, yeah, a couple of them haven't had them in at all yet. Um, I haven't seen any of the Daleks anywhere, but just seen the Sensorites and Vords in, in a couple of them. Um, but I was thinking about for Jason in New York and our overseas listeners, how best to describe B&M Bargains. And I thought, what better way to do it than through the words of their valued customers uh, from a small selection of Google reviews. <laughs> uh, so do you have one of these for your local branch, British Jason? Um, I tried searching for my local branch, but I couldn't find one. But then I put in a Doctor Who action figures, and it came up with quite a few interesting uh, reviews on uh, Trustpilot. Um, mainly, like, moaning about how they can't get the action figures. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the managers of these stores, like, they're getting marked down on these things, and it's because uh, it's entirely due, due to uh, availability of Doctor Who action figures. Yeah, During I mean, the pandemic, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, there's one here that I, I saw, and he gives, uh, he gives B&M one star, and he says, after three years of being a big, loyal customer, as I am a Doctor Who fan and collector of action figures that B&M sell, I am horrified and disappointed that since September 2020, most of Wales and the south of England have been ignored and no longer stock these items. <laughs> All stock has been sent to Scotland and the north of England. <laughs> Yay me. Uh, no explanation, no reason, nothing. On average, I spend £3,000 twice a year on these sets. And I was like, how much? <laughs> they only release about nine sets a year and they're 20 quid each. How, how much is this guy buying? <laughs> He's, he's got to be a scalper, hasn't he? I know, I know. And now, all of a sudden, most stores are not being allocated stock. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm gutted and very disappointed that this has happened, especially as there is no excuse or reason for this state of affairs. I just hope that next year, Wales stores will be getting stock of the new sets that will be made and released next year. 
Having had the usual pre-written reply in which my points I raised were totally ignored, don't know why, I felt that I had to add this. The stores in question were never allocated sets in the first place. So how is this translated as working hard to send stock to over 600 stores? It's not a case of being sold out as the sets were never sent in the first place. I got to point out that probably a million people died of COVID in the year 2020. <laughs> I know. It's World like, get yeah, your priorities right. <laughs> this is the worst thing that happened to this guy in the year 2020. I'll switch places with him right away. <laughs> the fact that he's written a letter as well, you can imagine like bullet points when he says like my points yeah. have not been addressed. <laughs> and and he's, he's signed himself as a disappointed collector. <laughs> Uh, I don't have a Doctor Who related one, but um, there was a review that I found from a couple of years ago in one of the local branches in Carlisle. Sorry, but I have to rant here. I came in here and recently asked if they'd sold Sprite, but a staff member told me they didn't and said, we have seven up instead. It's the exact same thing. Now, Sprite and seven up aren't the same thing. I hate seven up. If I wanted 7-Up, I would have picked the 7-Up and left as happy as Susan. But no, I wasn't happy because I wanted Sprite. <laughs> as happy as Susan. <laughs> Who's Susan? Why is she so happy? <laughs> I'm sorry, B&M, but you've let me down on this one. One star. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, that, that one amused me. And then did, did you have a, a Carlo one as well, Keith? Well, you very kindly found me one from a Mr. Neil Graham. And he says, in capital letters, I will not return back to St. Nicholas Gate to B plus M because of the till stuff there was four on till at frist, then only two remaining. I watty 20 minutes in queue, one till person <laughs> when off till, the walk around with kick balls. Plus there was two person jumped at you and no world was said. Plus new supervisor there. <laughs> one star. <laughs> uh, so, very disappointed gentleman there. <laughs> so hopefully that gives a flavour to our listeners overseas of... of, of what a B&M bargains is like and, uh, and what it's like to negotiate it to, uh, to, on our hunt for action figures. <laughs> it's a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> and the I thought Americans on Twitter complaining about the vaccine mandate were ill-informed and poorly literate, but uh, <laughs> my lack of faith in mankind is now spreading across the pond to people who spend all this time <laughs> Composing angry letters at toy shops. In the middle of the deadliest pandemic in a century, this is what these guys have to complain about. I always have to point out that I had to put the punctuation to that because it's essentially one sentence. <laughs> As I do have human-sized lungs, I could not have done that in one breath. <laughs> they were too angry for punctuation. Uh, I've not been in one for a year and a half. It's uh, Mark, you're very kind, and you sort of like uh, hunt these things out for me, which I'm very grateful for. Very welcome. I've got uh, a a couple of people I I supply them for. Um, We see uh, (laughs) friends in Wales and the south of England who are cruelly, (laughs) 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 cruelly missing out on them. Uh, so I think that was an admission there. Mark, if you're spending three thousand pounds twice a year to supply all your friends, that profiles you as the guy who wrote the first letter. <laughs> Guilty. Uh, so I imagine a lot of people are rewatching the story in the wake of the figures release. Uh, I know it's one that I hadn't watched for ages, uh, so I thought it was a good opportunity to get together and talk about the story as well. Uh, so to, to bring you into the conversation properly, American Jason, uh, do you think something was lost between script and production uh, in this story where they accidentally made Arbitan a good guy? It's almost as if you are reading my review that I sent to the Doctor Who ratings guide, which has not been posted yet, because <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> that went wrong between Terry Nation's typewriter and Lime Grove D. 
and it would take a really long time to articulate just to boil it down to its essence Marinus is the kind of society that in every other Doctor Who story ever from the evil Neanderthal in the tribe of gum to the master and the cyber time lords and the timeless children this is the kind of society Doctor Who is supposed to stand against this is the kind of society he's supposed to topple every thing on Marinus is wrong and yet the Doctor immediately goes along and at the end of the story Barbara turns to Ian and goes I shall miss Altos and Sabitha the two of them Sabitha is the daughter of a fascist overlord and Altos looks very good wearing those shortest shorts in the history of television but he is also the right hand of Arbitan who is the evil fascist overlord and the city of Millennius literally has swastikas on the walls of their courtroom. <laughs> Somewhere in there is a clue as to whether or not these are actually the good guys. And the police are dressed like the SS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the Vord probably were the good guys after all. They were resisting universal mind domination. Mm-hmm. Other than the fact that they're carrying stabby knives, uh, maybe this whole story is produced backwards. That being said... I have a deep and abiding nostalgic love for the Keys of Marinus. And yes, stretches of it are dull and some of the production values are, well, they make Underworld look good. But uh, I think at its heart, there's so much to enjoy about the story that I can overlook the fascism and I can overlook the bad production values and the wobbly sets. And are the Vord supposed to be monsters made of rubber are they aliens are they humans in fetish suits what are the void we never actually find out but if you set aside the politics and the plot holes and the production and some of the guest acting it's actually a really good story once you scrape away the seven or eight layers of horribleness it is a bit like if Doctor Who arrived in the Star Wars universe and and helped them finish build the Death Star, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, defeated those pesky rebels. <laughs> yes, putting a grill over that hole there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but in its defence, it was written very quickly as a replacement script, wasn't it? It was meant to be uh, the hidden planet was meant to be the story, and. Uh, for whatever reason, that fallen through. So Terry had to write this on a bit of a rapid uh, pace. Four weeks, wasn't it, allegedly? The first episodes, yeah. There was, I mean, they still uh, weren't quite sure what the latter, the end of the story was going to be. They just kept the sets thinking that we're going to uh, probably use them at the end. But I don't think anybody knows what the Vord looked like, because that bloke actually says, are you a Vord? So even they don't know what they look like. And presumably they're indigenous to the planet. Yeah, it's quite funny the way the Vord are the main threat, but but are hardly in it. They're only in sort of two of the episodes, well, like kind of one and a half, really. Do you think it'd be more exciting if the Vord were chasing the Doctor and friends through the different zones? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot more interesting, yeah. Well, just ask yourself in the chase, what if it was the Vord instead of the Dallas? What if it was the Vord flopping around the top of the Empire State Building? What if it was the Vord exterminating the crew of the Mary Celeste? What if it was the Vord being attacked by Frankenstein and Dracula at the Festival of Ghana? I would pay money to see that. I know that Big Finish has done a whole number of Vord spin-offs for their early adventure series, but I think the reason Marinus works in spite of all the many problems, is because it is five B-movies stapled together. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Nation became a super-rich millionaire writer for a reason, because he's very good at taking these B-movie plots and just churning them out and making them enjoyable. And Keys of Marinus is five B-movies in a row, and it's very vivid in the way that it builds a world, because it's not just a web, it's a velvet web. It's not just snows, it's snows of terror. It's not just a jungle, it's a screaming jungle. So he brings the whole planet to life in a few brush strokes, and even if we're inadvertently rooting for the bad guys, every one of those scenarios comes alive. Um, Again, even though, just talk about the screaming jungle, if you think about it, at the end of the episode, that jungle is going to overrun the entire planet, first of all, so they're all going to die 
of these uh, streaming language, basically. At least but, that can be dominated. And the guy, Darius, that's his name according to the credits, he was supposed to be Arbitan's best friend, and Arbitan trusted him. And he builds this room full of traps that anybody looking for uh, the key has to overcome. And Arbitan doesn't know what the traps are because he doesn't tell the doctor and Ian. So who are we supposed to trust here? Speaking of plot holes. And all this, the acid seas, is that over the entire planet, do you think? So if the screaming jungle's on an island, that would contain it, wouldn't it? I think there's a map somewhere shown in the story that shows all of Marinus as one small island on a planet that's full of water. The yeah, because DVD you only really talks see the island, that. don't you, with, with the great big pyramid on it. And it, but even that kind of like doesn't really give you a sense of the scale because it's almost as if they're going from like continent to continent as they're traveling. But that kind of like island doesn't give you any sense of that when you first see it in the first episode. Yeah, yeah, it can't all be that island, can it? Because there's they're going from jungle to snowscape to to uh, yeah, you know, kind of lots of different climates. But it is nice to have a planet which isn't just one place, though. The majority of mm. Doctor Who planets are a few sets, aren't they? Or the odd quarry. Whereas this, you, I mean, you, we have got a planet which has got jungles and ice and cities and things. So at least it's nice to have a place which is a bit different in having different continents or different islands. I, have, I imagine there's different uh, countries. Mm. Obviously, one's going to get overrun by Triffids, but uh, apart from that. <laughs> there wasn't many people there, though, to be fair. That's just the one guy. They've got wolves, though, so that's a parallel evolution, unless they've, uh, it's an Earth colony. And different areas of Mariners have different government systems, whereas most of Doctor Who is three people dominate the entire planet. Mariners is a little more like Earth, where if the Doctor shows up in Burma and overthrows the government, the rest of the world isn't even going to know about it. And in Mariners, you have the, the brains and the jars that control one city, you have the uh, fascists in the city of Millennius who decide that you're guilty until proven innocent. You have Vassor, who's a libertarian living in a sort of anarchic um, wintry landscape. So Marinus has a lot more diversity than your average Doctor Who storyline because it's multiple forms of government. And it's almost the Doctor's job to topple each one as he goes along rather than uh, one ruler will take care of the entire planet. Quite insular government, though, because, I mean, if, even on this planet, you may not be aware of what goes on in every city, but, but if there was a city where everybody had been hypnotized, you'd probably be aware of that elsewhere. It'd be like questions raised at the house and the entire Birmingham would be hypnotized, wouldn't they? So. Yeah, there'd be some bad TripAdvisor reviews, wouldn't there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the brains in jars, we don't find out where they're from because they are either another intelligent species also native to Marinus or they're aliens they're not even given a name are they because I think I have seen in some books that they're referred to as the Morphotons but I don't yes. think that that's actually you know written in any script anywhere but the thing that struck me is like because Raymond Cusack was one of the designers on this story how much they look like his early Dalek creature designs. Mm. It's almost as if he's recycling himself, like for all his this, this Doctor Who story. Yeah. Did you watch the extras with uh, Raymond Cusack? I didn't on this occasion, but I remember oh. watching it when the uh, DVD came out. I adore him. He's so grumpy. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> he hates rivets on Daleks. Yeah, he's totally negative <laughs> on everything. I adore him. I just I could listen to him forever, just being hypercritical on everything he did. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's quite sort of apologetic. I haven't watched it for ages, but he's quite apologetic on that one, isn't he? Even on the commentary, the rest of them sort of waxing lyrical about how marvellous it is, and he's going, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he has a go at, um, oh, what a lovely war and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'm a big fan. I could listen to him all day. So I think The guy created the Daleks and was given £25 as his fee for creating the most iconic monsters ever. I'd be grumpy too. Definitely. So the, another thing about this story, there's some dark stuff that you don't get anywhere else really in Doctor Who. So Vasor, the 
the kind of wild Hillman sort of character that uh, his intentions towards Barbara obviously are re- really dark, aren't they? It's it's fairly clear that he wants to rape her, um, which is you don't. I think the only other thing I can think of that's like that is uh, is obviously much later in in Dinosaurs on a Spaceship when um, you've got the trader Solomon who's who's making some pretty. Uh, explicit threats towards Cleopatra in that, but it's I very when there is actual rape. Yeah, I was surprised when I actually got the DVD off the shelf yesterday, and I was thinking, oh, there's surely there's got to be. As I was watching it, there's got to be some references to all this knife crime from the boards, but nothing at all. It said PG, and it said uh, some scenes of sexual violence, and I was like, whoa, because <laughs> I hadn't got to the snows of Terry yet, and even I was surprised at it. The lead to domestic violence, which is uh, fairly explicit as well. Yeah, yeah, that was the other thing as well that was um, yeah that, that was really shocking. And again, you don't get that in Doctor Who until you get the master and his wife um, at the end of series three, do you? And even that, you don't actually hear it happening. It's just no. like you see the end result. You actually hear the slap behind the door. Mm. And there's the subtext that Fiona Walker, who plays the battered spouse, and the prosecutor, who's played by the Donald Pickering, who later played a space chicken in Time on the Ronnie. <laughs> the subtext is the two of them are having an affair because she's a battered spouse and he's in law enforcement, and they are clearly hatching some sort of plot on the side. So it's almost the first extramarital affair in Doctor Who, and you kind of have to use your imagination a little bit, but I find it hard to believe that is not what Terry Nation intended. Mm. I mean... Apparently, David Whitaker was quite keen on uh, Barbara being put into such situations because it means the Crusades as well. It, it's, uh, she's also sort of under that implied threat as well. So I think it may have been a David Whitaker thing. Yeah, and it's done in such a way that I think it would go over the heads of, of young children. So it's <laughs> just thought he was chasing around the table. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I can speak to that because my first encounter with Marinus was when I was 11 years old. So I went to my first Doctor Who convention in New York in July 1985. And this was at uh, the Roosevelt Hotel on Madison Avenue and 45th Street. And it was a one-day convention. And I believe Matthew Waterhouse was the special guest. But all the stuff with him was later in the day. And my dad and I got there in the late morning and stayed until early afternoon. So I never got to see Matthew Waterhouse. But the two biggest attractions of the con, number one was the dealer's room, because I'd never been in a room, and I've been a fan for only about seven or eight months at this point, with all the merchandise and all the novelizations. So I bought like seven or eight novelizations just that one day alone, including Keys of Marinus, And the next big event was the screening of the Dalek Invasion of Earth. This was before most US PBS stations got the Hartnell package in later 1985. It was probably the first chance that most Americans had to watch any Hartnell episode. And I was right there watching it in this hotel ballroom. But as we were waiting for the uh, episode to start, I had a lot of time to sit in the hotel lobby and read my novelizations. So I read most of Keys of Marinus sitting there on a couch in the lounge at the Roosevelt Hotel. And I just loved it. And of course, I didn't know anything about the visual look of the 1960s at this point. I was picturing Ian in my head as having a very baritone action hero voice. And I was surprised a few hours later to get to Dalek Invasion of Earth and find out that he had almost as squeaky a voice as I grew up to have all these years later, which uh, the voice didn't match the character. But I was riveted by Marinus, and I'm going to tell you this. I think the keys of Marinus influenced my eventual career choice more than almost anything else, because it was probably my first proper courtroom drama. The Millennia stuff (laughs) takes up the largest part of the story, because it takes place in episodes five and half of episode six. And there's courtroom scenes. And if you're watching Doctor Who in order, William Hartnell's very first heroic moment ever is when he turns up in episode five and offers to be Ian's defense attorney. And the first thing he does when he gets appointed as Ian's lawyer is he asks for a postponement. Now, flash forward 36 years later, this is literally my day job. 
And Keys of Marinus planted the seed in my head that being a trial lawyer or being a judge is as exciting as any other job in the Doctor Who universe. So all the people who watched Doctor Who and became scientists or became action heroes or became politicians, I ended up going into the law, possibly because of the path that Keys of Marinus started me on. And it all goes down to my reading this book at age 11. I'm thinking it was the greatest thing ever. And yes, at age 11, I did not have the foggiest idea what Vazor wanted with Barbara. I really <laughs> thought he was just chasing her around the table. It's like the name of the Greek Orthodox Church. <laughs> yeah. My first description of Marinus was uh, the annual, because I, I found it at a jumble sale when I was a kid, might have been about seven. And uh, the Vord was, it was, it was like the Vord was like the main villain in the annual. So I was quite aware of them and Marius, even Marius, even when I was quite a small child. Yeah, the 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 Vord have turned up. It was a, it's the Fishmen of Candelinga or something, is it? That's like the first spin-off thing. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I do think the big Finnish story, Domain of the Vord, um, is very good. That's um, another first Doctor one. And it sort of delves into, um, I suppose, the uh, the point from this, going to episode six, when Yatek disguised as Arbitan, and he's got the hood pulled over his enormous head. <laughs> and uh, he says, oh, I've been uh, been injured um, by the machine or something, as if uh, this is going to explain why he's, his head is such a weird shape and proportion. Uh, but we learn in that story, the domain of the Vord, is that the, the, the helmets are basically fixed on, aren't they? That they, um, they can't be removed once they've sort of earned the right to wear. So that sort of solves that little plot point quite neatly. Yartek and the Vords sounds like a bad 70s punk band. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting point there. If you discover Marinus through the annual and you have the frame of reference that the, the Vord are the most important creatures of the Doctor Who universe, what if these two stories had swapped places in the production order? And what if you had Christopher Barry, who was a terrific director on Marinus, and John Gorey, who was not on the Daleks. What if the Vord ended up becoming the linchpin of the Doctor Who universe? What if you had the song, I Want to Spend My Christmas with Yartek? What if you had <laughs> Vord Mania instead of Dalek Mania? I mean, it's the same writer. It's both Terry Nation. It's just all down to the fact that one story had the best production values ever, and the other one did not. I think yeah. the design won it for the Daleks, though, didn't it, to be fair? I mean, there was so unusual because hmm. the book is basically a bloke in a rubber suit so yeah well to be fair I mean the mask is quite a, quite a striking design you know so I think that's probably one of the reasons why they've kind of stayed quite iconic and we've got like two action figures of them like you know 50 odd years later you know hmm. um, I mean I haven't seen this story since I think the VHS came out so as I was watching it last night, I, I was just so surprised that the Vord are literally in it for about <laughs> 10 minutes out of the whole two and a half hours. It was like, really? But they've persevered, and I think that's that's down to um, the design of them, you know, because mm -hmm. they don't necessarily do anything. They haven't got a catchphrase. Um, you know, they don't, you know, ask somebody a memory of 60 Doctor Who. They're probably not going to, like, say, oh, you know, oh yeah, the one with the guys in the black uh, wetsuits with the strange like Teletubby symbols on the reds. You know, they're always going to go for the Cybermen, the Daleks, or the Yeti in the underground, aren't they? You know, but there must be something about them that's like persevered for all this time. I think it is an element of the mystery of them that we don't know. I think you sort of led to believe that they're natives of Marinus, but then you don't really know. They, they could also have come from space. You don't know what they look like. Like you say, whether they are men in rubber suits, because that's what's suggested by the body that they find or the lack of body they found with the, the suit with the tear in it that the acid has, has eaten away. So I think an element of mystery there, isn't it? They keep you guessing. You can, you can sort of impose different things on them because I think in world enough and time, uh, we have it that they were a version of, of the Cybermen as well, or one of the uh, you know yeah. sort of parallel evolutions of Cybermen, which um, I think is it sort of canonizes something from um, a comic strip, doesn't it? I think. Yeah, it's a Grant Morrison uh, comic strip from uh, I think eighty six, a Six Doctor story, isn't it? The World Shapers was that it? 
Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I think I think because they lend themselves so much to different different interpretations. Plus, the pictures of them, like wrestling Susan, always seem to be in things as well. I mean, as a kid, there was like uh, publications about Doctor Who were much more sort of sparse, and then the Doctor Who Weekly came out, and like picture of Susan wrestling a board always seemed to be crop up with alarming regularities. So mm. I think that's what we pinch on the consciousness as well. But no, oh I think the thing about this this story, I think the way that it moves location and story pretty much every week, um, it does. It, it's very propulsive like that, isn't it? It, it definitely keeps you watching because you want to see where they where they're going to turn up next. There, there just are these sort of because uh, I'm like I pretty much like all Doctor Who. I'm not a very sort of demanding viewer, but there are bits and pieces where you think. Why aren't they questioning that? Like the um, the whole thing, like you say about the sort of fascist, the remover of free will, these Arbitan's whole plan. Then when they arrive uh, in the Velvet Web, and it's like, oh, it's amazing here. You can have everything you want, but there are slaves. They don't. They don't sort of question the fact that there are slaves or servants there who don't get everything they want. And then in the in the trial on uh, Millennius. Like, you can't do a sort of... I mean, it's not a locker-roomed murder, but it, it, it sort of is that kind of murder. When you've already introduced teleport bracelets, so they're saying, well, the murderer couldn't possibly have got out of here. What, did he just vanish into thin air? And you're like, yes, you've been doing that week in and week out. Yeah, it's a, the technology exists in this planet. <laughs> it's a, there's, there's huge, huge things like that that are, uh, that are unquestioned, I think. A typical Terry Nation script yeah. there. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of uh, podcasts recently about people sort of like doing the grand pilgrimage and watching the series from the start. And uh, Keys of Mariners is very popular. I think, especially amongst New Who fans, I think because it's just like, it is little short stories. It's it's a bit more like the modern series in that respect. You've got like a, instead of having a grand seven-part story which you've just endured from the uh, previous week, you've got little uh, little vignettes, haven't you? I mean, compare it to Evil of the Daleks, which is getting this fancy new release. Evil of the Daleks, from the middle of episode two to the middle of episode six, all takes place in the same Maxtable house. So that's five episodes set in the same country estate, three or four rooms. And I realize that I'm walking the thin line of blasphemy here, (laughs) but I find most of Evil of the Daleks to be very dull and a slog, and I think it's a testament to how overrated David Whitaker is as an episode writer that this is hailed as an all-time classic when well, what's the, 86% of it is people walking around corridors in one house. But a booby-trapped house instead of a booby-trapped jungle. A booby has a booby-trapped jungle. So uh, Keys of Marinus does move, and again, the individual parts don't have a lot of plot logic for example when they're inside the ice mountain they have no flames no torches how do they see how is their natural lighting inside that house that ice mountain nobody really thought that through and then the ice soldiers are they robots are they supernatural humans who can survive freezing what are they we never we never find out well let's see peter davidson's earliest memory of doctor who because he remembers that uh, bit being quite frightened by them but Terry Nation, no, he was always a great ideas person. And you can probably say that he, a lot of occasions he didn't really think things through, but you can see his, his tropes starting to appear, you know, even though, you know, some of them are in the Daleks, but there's also some of them in here. You, you know, you've got glass beaches, you've got acid seas, you've got ice caves, treacherous allies, you know. He, he loves the cavern. Mm-hmm. Yes, he does. You know, it's all that kind of like, he likes the chase, you know, because this essentially is kind of like one big adventure going from location to location to location. And you can see that he's probably then adapted that for when he then asked for a third Dalek story. He's then going, oh, what have I done before? What can I do again? What can I do the same? Because, you know, Terry Nation was good at what he did, but I know there was some quarters of those people who worked with him who would effectively say he was a little bit lazy sometimes and he would just, like, knock out a script in a couple of days and not put many descriptions in it and then just post it off. So I can see that you can see he's starting to reuse ideas already, even in his second story, but effectively he's doing the template for the 
for you know the whole of Doctor Who, isn't he, in these two stories? That's com- what most of television is. Most of television is formula. It's the same things over and over again. Terry Nation is doing the formula, but he presents a vivid picture, like you say, you know, a sea of acid, a beach of glass. And there's some real wit in the script. Like, there's a joke about color television and why the TARDIS doesn't have a color television scanner, because obviously it's a black and white show, and he makes a joke about it. So even though it's tossed off in a hurry, there's a great level of sophistication in there, almost without trying. And I think uh, that kind of quest sort of narrative is always co- quite compelling, isn't it? Anyway, it keeps you watching because you want to, like a sense of completeness almost, you want to see them get to the end and, and, and collect everything. But just to go back to the point... About, the previous story, that was another quest story, wasn't it? I mean, it's another travelogue book story. Yeah. Just to go back At to the point... At least it's boring as that. At least it's, it's, uh, it's a bit more entertaining, so uh, I think that's another reason why it's a bit more popular than uh, people originally imagined. Mm. I think it's it's bad, but it is never boring. And it also has Doctor Who's first big-name celebrity guest star. I mean, Arbitan is only in the one episode. This is George Coloris. He's literally in Citizen Kane. So, number one, to go from Citizen Kane to the keys of Marinus is kind of like the downward career trajectory of Don Cheadle, who went from <laughs> Hotel Rwanda to Hotel for Dogs. And this is going from Citizen Kane to <laughs> Citizen Cardboard. Um, but you have the guy from Citizen Kane in Doctor Who. And when I first watched Citizen Kane for the first time, probably about 20 years after I first encountered Marinus, my first thought was, George Caloris, that's Arbitan, and he's in Citizen Kane. This is amazing. <laughs> I don't know if that's a downward trajectory. No, <laughs> It's the pinnacle of his career. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At least from our point of view. Yeah. The bloke who tried to rape Barbara became a recurring villain in The Tomorrow People. So I mean, that's a, a career change. That he was also, Mark and I talked about him last month when we did our Myth Makers episode with Conrad because he came back as Agamemnon. Oh, that's right, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he was oh. also the Gypsy King in From Russia with Love who gives James Bond the gift of two Romani women at once. Ah, yeah. We'll sort this out the gypsy way. I hadn't realised that, <laughs> yes. yeah. I mean, in the book, they're naked when they fight, but uh, see, that uh, might have got a higher certificate than um, that was commercially viable for the movie. You're going to see James Bond tonight, aren't you? So be able to tell us a bit to the recreated then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as we record, I'm going to a midnight screening of No Time to Die. Which I'm looking forward to. Just to go back to the point about the ice mountain that you made, though, American Jason. If the whole mountain is made out of ice, uh, if if the whole mountain is made out of ice, sure it'd be translucent and sunlight would get through. Well, the interior of the mountain is ice, but presumably there's rock. Also, I want to point out that here we are in 2021, all right? This story is nearly 60 years old. We are having a more in-depth production meeting about the logistics of that ice mountain than anybody on staff would have had <laughs> in Lime Grove D when the story went before the cameras. I think it's an ice mountain like the ice hotel in the Bond movie, Die Another Day. I think it's literally an ice mountain. There's light because it's translucent and it's daytime. Bought a nice mountain with plumbing, so they're going to put some lights in as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think those those guards, you, they immediately say, I mean, they are hostile when they wake up, but you know, everyone can be a bit grumpy when they wake up, can't they? They, you, your initial your initial assumption would be that they were Arbitan's allies as well, who had been charged with guarding the key as Darius had but they don't even stop to try and talk to them or anything do they I mean from their point of view they've woken up somebody's trying to steal the key their sacred duty is to defend it for Arbitan and uh, they kill one of them plunges to his death not as a cardboard <laughs> yeah we don't really see down that, that chasm do we that's the only sense we get of how deep it is where is when one of the uh, one of the ice guards falls down it mm. And gives good scream. Yeah. I think if, yeah, there's another thing, if it was made now, obviously, we would see this uh, this huge chasm with the with the fragile rope bridge 
uh, sort of uh, swinging above it, wouldn't we? Yeah, and I suppose everything would just be a bit more tied together. You might, you might even have the machine start to work, and you would see the people through the different zones that you've that we visited, or the different countries. Um, you know, maybe start to lose their free will before they'd be clutching their heads and things. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Um, you, you, you certainly want to get Billy Hartnell disappearing for two and a half episodes, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to see if it looked any browner when you come back, but they didn't think you did. <laughs> I don't think he had a tanning complexion. Yeah. Where's Barbara in the centre, right? She's distinctly brown when she comes back. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably one of the well, the more deft ways of doing, though, isn't it, for the Doctor to uh, to skip ahead? Um, it makes more sense that he disappears in, in terms of storylines, story terms for his holiday than um, than some of them. When he That's just like, Patrick Tran just disappears in the Web of Fear, for example. Or in The Wheel in Space, which is another really bad David Whitaker script, Trown gets banged on the head in part one, spends all of part two as a stunt double under a blanket, spends all of part three lying on a gurney, and doesn't take his first steps in the entire story until halfway through episode four. At least here, when Hartnell comes back from vacation, he's coming back as a hero who volunteers to be Ian's lawyer, and it's the first time you're ever standing up and cheering for the character. So at least going away gives him a grand, majestic, dramatic return, whereas David Whitaker's idea of a grand, majestic, dramatic return for Troughton is to have him lie in a gurney for an episode and a half. <laughs> whereas in so, the next uh, Terry Nation story, you've got the Doctor being knocked unconscious, and he's played by Edmund Warwick, who's in this story, who then goes on to play the robot version of the Doctor in The Chase, doesn't he? So... Impossible to distinguish from the original. Bless. <laughs> yeah, I think I think basically what I was saying is it's sort of impossible not to like this story, despite all its faults. It does have a charm to it, you know, yeah. and I think that's a lot of what Doctor Who, early Doctor Who certainly does. You know, you kind of like... You, it's you know you can see past the like you know, the very small production values and the fact that it's supposed to be on this huge continent and it's like a little corner of Lime Grove Studios, but you know like it's the, it's the charm of of the production that gets you through it. So what I did is I went back to my hashtag on Twitter, which is hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, Dr Who Pilgrimage, and. The other day was the 11-month anniversary of my starting this journey because I started with uh, Unearthly Child and Cave of Skulls on October 27th, and here we are, end of September, and I'm starting Twin Dilemma tonight. Say a prayer for me, by the way. (laughs) I might not come out of that alive. But I went back and I found my three nights of watching Keys of Mariner. So I started November 5th. And I was doing this in the middle of the U.S. presidential election, which took five days to resolve. And in one of my posts, I literally kept score in terms of electoral votes. Biden, 264. Trump, 214. Keys of Marinus, three. (laughs) (laughs) But as I'm going through each of the six episodes, you can see that I start off really disappointed in how much this doesn't work. And my first words talking about the sea of death are sadly dull. And I make that same joke about Don Cheadle going from Hotel Rwanda to Hotel for Dogs. But as I go along, each successive episode, you can see me getting more and more enthused. So for Velvet Web, I said, the strength of Marinus is that it's made up of single-episode sci-fi B-movies, brains in jars, hypnotizing their servants, and creating a false sense of prosperity. Relevant to 2020, I said. And I got the grand total of zero likes because I had, like, no followers back then. But I think it's a good point. And then I complain about The Screaming Jungle being the weakest B-movie of the serial. And for Snows of Terror, all I'm doing is pointing out plot hole after plot hole after plot hole. By the time we get to Sentence of Death and Keys of Marinus, I am jazzed and I am enthused. And I even talk about how the Doctor saves the day by Scooby-Dooing the villain of the (laughs) B-plot, which is uh, Donald Pickering's character. So uh, this is a story that could have been a colossal failure just in terms of production values alone. 
but here I am watching it, and I'm just getting more and more enthused as I go along, in spite of the production values, in spite of the plot holes. So the story has this kind of magical pull on me. And yes, it's not the best story in season one. I think along with the Sensorites, it's probably the weakest script and the poorest made. But it still works. And it, if you're watching Doctor Who you know, almost 60 years later, the story is still part of the magic. And again, parts of it are bad, but it is never boring. No, I, I agree with that. And I think especially the the trial one, yeah, I think is is the most interesting one. And I could not remember where the hidden key was because that's set up quite well. Like we know it's definitely not in the room. It definitely, you know, wasn't, it's not on any, on the dead body or, or with Ian and they can't find it anywhere. And then it being in the murder weapon is, is quite a clever kind of resolution for that, I think. Um, and slightly reminded me just to make one more kind of James Bond reference. It's obviously on my mind um, in, in the book of Casino Royale. Uh, and if you remember in the movie, the uh, Bond and Vespa are tortured for the code to, that, that allows them into the, uh, the bank account for the winnings from the, the poker game. Um, and in the book, I think it's a Baccarat game, but the, uh, yeah. the winnings are a check. And they know that Bond took it to his room. They search the room. They can't find it. They torture Bond. And in the end, he's, he's unscrewed the plate on his bedroom door, his hotel bedroom door with the, with the number of the room on it and hidden it behind that and then just screwed it back on. And it sort of reminded me of that, just a very sort of clever but simple, simple, elegant solution of, of where to hide something. And I, I, yeah, I really liked that. I thought that was a, a clever part of the story. That's part of the magic of Terry Nation, though, because he does a couple of other very clever bits of plotting. So the episode five cliffhanger is the very first double Jeopardy cliffhanger in Doctor Who, because you have Ian is sentenced to death, and you have Susan, who's now being kept prisoner and sentenced to death as well. And that's the title of the episode, Sentence of Death. And it's the very first time in the show that you have the two cliffhangers at once. And then in part six, um, the B-plot solves the A-plot, because they solve the B-plot, which is the millennia stuff, because Kala makes this verbal slip and she lets slip that she has Susan prisoner, and they weren't supposed to know that. And then they use that same gaffe to solve the A-plot at the end of the episode back on the island of Marinus when Yartek makes the same verbal gaffe and reveals that he has information he shouldn't have. So that's sophisticated plotting. And if you're watching Doctor Who in order, you don't have that level of sophistication in the plotting in the first four serials, you know, Unearthly Child, Daleks, Edge of Destruction, um, even Marco Polo. You have this real mystery where the characters have to think and logic and science their way out of the situation, which is a little different from having somebody shoot Tigana with an arrow or just blowing up the Daleks' power supply. So that's another thing I think in favor of Marinus and that it's a triumph of intellect and romance over brute force and cynicism, to quote Craig Ferguson. Absolutely. Um, any, any final thoughts on that, Keith? It was the first story to appear on BBC One. I did not know that. Yep. Episode three. What's and it's also the first story that of the two that Terry Nation wrote for the show that didn't involve the Daleks. And it's just a bit of a shame, like, given how good he was at coming up with plots and stories and ideas that he didn't do more stories that didn't involve the, uh, you know, the movable dustbins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, w- and when he did, it was the Android invasion. So be careful what you wish for there, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. I <laughs> think that's an underrated story. Space. Oh, it's excellent. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, that was a great discussion about the action figures from the Keys of Marinus and the story itself. Just remains for me to ask each of you where else our listeners can find you on the internet. Uh, so, American Jason? So, I've already uh, dropped my hashtag, Doctor Who Pilgrimage. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels. I finished Caves of Androzani 3 and 4 last night, so I still have the Fifth Doctor's regeneration fresh in my brain. 
And I made the rather depressing point on Twitter the other night that this is the last high point of my classic series pilgrimage. Because <laughs> I can I can hear people having strokes no. in the background. I'm going to say this as a statement of fact and not as a value judgment. If you look at every story coming up from Twin Dilemma through Survival, there are some very good stories in there, but there's none that I rate higher than Caves of Androzani. So unless some story comes out of left field and catches me off guard, and I surprisingly love it. I am not expecting to like any story again over the next six weeks, which is how long it'll take to get through the Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy years. I don't anticipate enjoying as many stories as much as I do Caves of Androzani. So it's a little bit of a letdown. That being said, I'm going to have the DVD Blu-ray box sets for season 23 and season 24 and season 26. So there is every chance for one of those stories to jump along and knock Caves of Androzani off of its perch. After I finish Survival, I'm thinking about doing a Wilderness Years, like watching one Doctor Who spinoff for every year that Doctor Who was off the air. So like, there's the VHS edition of Shada, there's the special edition of Five Doctors, there's Air Zone Solution, there's Shakedown... There's uh, Dimensions in Time, which I could even do over two nights and watch both halves <laughs> of part two. And then on the other side of that, um, you know, there's Death Comes to Time. There's The Scream of the Shalka. There's a lot of wilderness material stuff to watch downtime before I get to the new series. So the pilgrimage is going to last for quite a while. I've got six more weeks of the classic series, a couple of weeks of the wilderness years. And then I'll start up with Christopher Eccleston. So come follow me on Twitter. Come join on the fun. Come comment. Come disagree with my opinions. Come have a stroke when I admit that I don't like the McCoy here's as much as case of Androzani. And that's at Doctor Who Novels on Twitter. I'm recovering from the shock of that statement. <laughs> <laughs> my work is done here. You've got the best Cyberman story coming. You've got the two best Dalek stories coming. Oh, how can you say just Callum and his I don't know. <laughs> I feel sympathy for you for having suffered through the boredom of Androzani, but uh, you've got the best story ever coming next, so you'll enjoy it, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you can find me and all my lovely pictures of Colin Baker on Twitter on 50DW50, which I'm seriously going to have to change in a couple of years' time, and that's it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DjangoMax72. Um, trying to finish off my Bond marathon. Uh, in time for No Time to Die on Sunday, I'm seeing it. I've got Skyfall and Spectre to do. Uh, that's Bond marathon's been 18 months in the <laughs> making because it kept postponing the bloody release date, but for good reason. Uh, I'm also doing a, mar a rewatch of the Planet of the Apes 1970s TV series, so uh, I've got a bit of a thread going on that. And you can also find me on YouTube, uh, Bearded Geek Toy Reviews, where I review Doctor Who figures, Star Wars figures, and much, much more. Planet of the Apes TV series is terrific. I give that a big shout-out, so thank you for watching that. Yeah, I've not seen it since I was a kid, and I'm, I know I'd read a lot of stuff that it was quite formulaic, and it didn't like grasp its potential, but I'm really I'm about halfway through. I think I'm on. I've done eight episodes now, um, and there's only fourteen because they cancelled it mid-season. Um, but I'm really enjoying it. There's a quest format, sort of, sort of like Keys of Mariners, because they're traveling along looking for clues. And one of the two astronauts, Ron Harper, on the strength of Planet of the Apes, then got hired for this very famous American. American Saturday morning sci-fi TV series called Land of the Lost. And he played um, the father figure to the two younger kids in the final season of that show. So I got into Planet of the Apes, the TV series, because it had the guy from Land of the Lost, which was, when I was a kid watching that, it was my first science fiction series full stop. So Ron Harper has a lot to do with my being a science fiction fan before I even discovered Doctor Who. I don't think we even got Land of the Lost over here in the UK. Um, we said, the only thing I really know it is of the awful Will Ferrell um, remake that they did a couple of years back. That was done as a comedy, but Land of the Lost was a very sophisticated sci-fi series. Season one was script edited by David Gerald 
from Star Trek who did Trouble with Tribbles. They brought on a lot of top-tier science fiction writers. Walter Koenig from Star Trek even wrote an episode. So there was a lot of thought, and there was a lot of mystery, and there was a lot of science fiction paradoxes going on. And as they read season three, it gets sillier and sillier and sillier. But season one of Land of the Lost, I think, is, even though it's a cheaply made Saturday morning kids show, it's a really good science fiction series. And... Um, I guess I'm getting off topic here, but I recommend that as well, as well as the Keys of Mariners. I may check it out on YouTube. I'm sure it's probably up there somewhere. And it has a very iconic, a singable theme song, which I encourage you to uh, uh, give a listen. <laughs> uh, we should probably say, uh, once Jason and I have seen No Time to Die, we'll be doing a very special one-off Trap Eon podcast um about that uh, about that film and probably uh rounding off the the daniel craig era of bond in, in much the same way as we did um avengers endgame which sort of finished that kind of a initial infinity saga of, of the marvel cinematic universe and we also looked at return uh no, sorry. We looked Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker. We did the Star Wars one, didn't we? Yeah, we looked at uh, which was um, yeah, kind of a discussion of that film and and overall the Star Wars sequel trilogy. So uh, yeah, so listen uh, listen out for that one too. Uh, completely agree with Keith. Silver Nemesis is the best Cyberman story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> we all knew what you meant, Keith. <laughs> you can find me on twitter i'm at quark mcmalice you can follow the podcast at trap one underscore find all our previous episodes on trap one.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice and it would be brilliant if you would leave us a star rating or a little review to help other people find the podcast thanks again guys been a lot of fun and thanks very much for listening at home goodbye (laughs) 